You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. runs away with me. Victim has many small lacerations on her face, revealing a potential struggle, possible cause from a fall on concrete or gravel. There is one deep laceration in the throat from some form of knife. Severing the jugular vein, the victim bled to death. Rumorg. Are you still sitting at that computer? I'm almost finished. You're missing all the fun. I still got a little bit more work to do. I'll be there soon. All right, love you. Love you too. Bye. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. On this episode, I'm talking to Michael Callio. He is a local boy made good, so to speak. He is known for things like Hatred of a Minute, Mutant Swinger from Mars, Koreatown, and so much more. And hopefully will soon be known for his documentary, My Dinner with Leatherface, which is a documentary about Gunnar Hansen. So you're going to hear about that and a whole lot more on this interview. Please enjoy. I want to obviously talk to you uh, about my dinner with Leatherface, but it looks like you have so many irons in the fire. It's kind of crazy. I'm kind of juggling a bunch of stuff right now. I'm, you know, I'm doing like a handful of things at the same time. The the movie that Gunner starred in that I did as my first feature called Hatred of a Minute. I'm prepping that for Blu-ray. So one of those projects is the full circle documentary is the documentary about the making of and remaking of the movie because I never had a making of. And then I'm doing my second feature. I'm prepping that for Blu-ray right now. I mean, so I'm, I'm bouncing all over the place. How did you decide to get into the business? What was your motivation for going into show business? I got into the business like a lot of people did. I saw Star Wars when I was six and a half and went, I want to do that. And my mom thought I wanted to go to space. And I said, no, I want to make movies about people who go to space. It never changed. I latched onto the whole film thing at a very early age. And I was raised by my mother and my grandmother. So my mom, who worked for Michigan Bell back a thousand years ago, she would take the still photos on our vacations. And my grandmother would take Super 8 movies. So when we were done with vacation, I would ask grandma, hey, is there any Super 8 movie film left? Can I use it? So I started basically shooting our vacation short ends on Super 8. Then I started buying my own film and stuff. Got a paper route and everything. And where'd you grow up at? 
I grew up in Redford, Michigan. We're at Six Mile and Beach Day. You have so many things. I was saying before we started recording that you have one of the most eclectic IMDb profiles that I've seen in a while. And I just want to give listeners a, uh, a taste here. So you, I have you listed here as producer, director, editor, cinematographer, writer, actor, miscellaneous crew, special effects, camera and electrical department, visual effects, editorial department, sound department, art department, production designer, second unit director or assistant director, art director, makeup department, animation department, composer, costume and wardrobe department, costume designer, music department, thanks, of course, and self on top of all that stuff. I've done a couple things in the entertainment business. I try and do as much as humanly possible. It started out with you know, when I, I when I first started, I was a production assistant, and then I wanted to do as many jobs as possible as I was learning. But then it just became anytime I could get a job on a movie or on a television show or any on a project, I'd jump at the chance. And sometimes it was for survival because I needed the money, and sometimes it was learning, and sometimes it was helping a friend, and sometimes it was my own project that I decided that. I'm not going to get any help from anyone else because I'm making a thing with no money. So I'm going to do as many jobs as possible. What were those early Michigan jobs like for you? They were fun. The learning experience were a lot of fun. The first movie I worked on was a horror film called Hellmaster. It was originally called Them, then it was called Soul Stealer, and then it became Hellmaster when it was released. But I was going to uh, Oakland Community College in Farmington Hills. And I was taking a film class, I think. I, I just remember that they were looking for PAs and people to help out on a horror film. And uh, so I went in for an interview and they hired me. I was doing production assistant work. And there was a scene where the director needed about 30 or 40 paintings for an art gallery scene in this horror movie. And he found out I was an artist as well and asked me if I could paint 20 or 30 paintings relatively quick. And I said, well, how quick? And they, they said, we need them tomorrow. So I got some petty cash and went to the art store and bought 30 canvases of various sizes and some cheap paints. And I said, what kind of paintings are they? And they were like, they're abstract. Be weird. Do whatever you want. Make them scary or put skulls in them. So that's what I did. I went home and I whipped together 30 paintings and 14 hours and brought them back the next day and they used them for the art gallery scene john saxon infamous for being uh, in nightmare on elm street and enter the dragon he was in this film but they had already shot him out i think he, they shot him for like three days but they missed doing some close-ups of his hands in the movie he plays this evil mad scientist who creates this serum and injects people with it and they become under his control he had to do something with the syringes in his hands and and they didn't have those shots so i ended up being john saxon's hand double which was kind of fun so that was like the beginning of i'm gonna do as many jobs as possible on everything i can do did you find yourself specializing in things as you went along or are you still just kind of this jack of all trades Hopefully, I specialize in directing and writing, but in the beginning, it was a learning experience and to try and do as many things as possible. I feel like I've become a very good editor because I do a lot of editing when I'm not directing projects, but I hope I'm a really good director, too. Can you tell me a little bit about Creswell? Ah, uh, yes, Creswell. After I had shot my first 
film, Hatred of a Minute, that Bruce Campbell produced and Gunnar Hansen, the original Leatherface starred in, I did a 50s sci-fi spoof feature for my second feature. I actually did it while I was doing post, slowly doing post-production work on my first feature because I had the opportunity to make another movie, but the investors in that said movie didn't want to invest in a horror film. They wanted to invest in something different. So I convinced them to invest in this little 1950s sci-fi spoof comedy that is supposed to be a long lost film from a director named Orton Z. Creswell. And uh, Creswell is a mixture of all the bad habits of Orson Welles and the traits of Ed Wood blended into a guy who is a writer, producer, director, actor, and psychic. So he's a little Ed Wood. He's a little Orson Welles. He's a little uh, The Amazing Criswell. The first 10 minutes of this quote-unquote long-lost film is a mockumentary about this filmmaker and the people that he worked with. And after I was done with the movie, I thought, wouldn't it be fun to do something like what Christopher Guest did and continue to use the same people and continue to do movies based around this fake genre director who, if you watch the mockumentary, as you're watching it, you realize that people like George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and other genre filmmakers stole their ideas from Criswell because no one really knew who Criswell was. So they, they thought they'd never get caught sort of a very subtle in joke about genre filmmaking. So I wanted to franchise Criswell. So I, I created, when I moved to Los Angeles, I shot a pilot that I wanted to use to get interest in to hopefully make it as a series. The pilot is sort of a twilight zone, outer limits spoof. And it's called Criswell presents the outer dimensional realm, which again, it's, it was made, you know, in the fake history, it was made like the year before the Twilight Zone aired. So people think Rod Serling stole Criswell's idea for his show. It's just a cute little dumb thing. But I'm still pursuing uh, the, the second movie, that the 50 sci-fi spoof that I'm prepping for Blu-ray. will have the pilot on there, on the Blu-ray. And hopefully someday it'll actually be a show. You mentioned your first feature film, which was Hatred of a Minute. And I'm very curious how you managed to connect with Bruce Campbell and uh, Gunnar Hansen. With Bruce, strangely enough, I was such a nerd about independent film, filmmaking in general, but independent film shot in and around Michigan that I started collecting any article in like the, the Detroit News or the Free Press or the Observer newspapers. I would out and put them in a scrapbook which doesn't totally answer your question, but there's a point to that. So uh, I dated a girl who used to babysit Bruce's daughter before he moved out of Michigan. And she connected with him because she was going to help produce a project called Southern Hospitality, which sort of fell apart after a couple of years. But I ended up, after the girl and I broke up, I ended up writing him a letter. I ended up she had accidentally left his address in one of my notebooks. She didn't want me to have any contact with him because she was a jerk. She left his address in the back of one of my notebooks. So I wrote him a letter that basically said, Dear Bruce, I'm 20. I'd like to make a movie, but I don't know how to start. Is there any advice you can give me? And I never heard back. And uh, another buddy of mine 
was going to help me produce this movie. And we were going to meet with a friend of his father's who was a lawyer in hopes that he would give us seed money to put together a limited partnership or an LLC so we could start raising money for the movie. And as we were literally getting ready to go to this meeting where we had a VC, I, I had a VHS tape with like all my old Super 8 films on it and a VCR. And it, we were carrying like electronics with us, heavy electronics, a television to show this guy that I was serious about making movies and that I'd made little movies. And, and we had our paperwork and things like that uh, that we wanted to show off. And my, the phone rang and uh, it was Bruce Campbell. And uh, he said, basically, I'm not going to give you any money because I don't have any. Uh, I, I'll help you out as much as I can, uh, but uh, there, I can't invest. And I don't know any investors who are willing to give up money, but I, I'm glad to give you any advice you need to pursue your dream. And I never gave up. He calls it the flake test. Every two years, he'd sort of reevaluate where I was as far as was I continuing to do what I needed to do and learn what I needed to learn and hustle and uh, still be interested, still stay focused. And I was still focused and still pursued it and got hungrier and hungrier to just try and make a movie. So we became, we, it went from um, us being just uh, acquaintances to friends and now we're family as I've known him for, see, 1989, 90. Yeah, it's like over half my life. But it was all because of a dumb letter, a, a dumb informal business letter. Yeah, you've ended up working with him just a ton. Like, again, looking at your filmography, it's just like so many things. And looking at your Vimeo channel, all the promos that you did for his last book. I mean, it feels like there's a real good working relationship there between you guys. That's great. There is. And I'm actually, I'm working for him right now. Uh, just before this call, I was putting together some tweaks on a sizzle reel for this game show that he wants to try and get produced as a television series called Last Fan Standing, which he does at conventions as like a live game show. And it's a, it's a pop culture quiz show for sci-fi and horror and comic books and pop culture in general. A couple of years ago, he did a Kickstarter for it. And I cut together the sizzle reel for the Kickstarter and the Kickstarter sort of fell apart. And then Ash versus Evil Dead happened and it got pushed to the side, but he continued to do it at uh, the conventions that he went to. And now he's, as he says, he's in game show host mode now that he's semi-retired from playing Ash. So uh, he's really pursuing this game show and hoping to get it to air which is fun. And tell me more about your relationship with Gunnar Hansen. I met Gunnar at a convention in 1990. It was a science fiction convention. It was the first of its kind. It wasn't even a Fangoria convention. Uh, and I think it was actually earlier than 1990. I think it was like 88 or 89. Uh, I met Gunnar at a convention in Dearborn, Michigan. And I went up to his table, intimidated as all hell, because the man was very big. And intimidating. He was, quite frankly, he was intimidating. And I walked up to his table because he was sort of alone. People were watching. I can't remember. I think it was someone big was there, like Nimoy. Or, and uh, so everyone was in the convention room listening to whoever was speaking. And I was never a big Trekkie. So I walked up to him to say hi. 
and he was so pleasant that I immediately became very comfortable. And uh, I was looking at certain pictures that he had to offer for autographs. And I chose the one where he's in mid sliding of the uh, metal sliding metal door in the beginning of Texas Chainsaw Massacre when he hits the guy in the head and drags him into the behind the door and then slams the door. And it's that really great moment with that really great sound. And Gunnar and I start talking about that. The, the, what was scary about that scene was the, not only the sliding and the slamming of the metal door, but the sound effect that they used that underlined it. It was almost like a music cue, but it was a drone. And we had a 20-minute conversation about that. And he signed my picture. And I said, hey, I wrote a script for a movie that I think you would be great for. You'd be a, an evil sheriff in a Southern town, would you be interested? And he said, sure. And he gave me his address and his phone number. And, uh, later that week I sent him the script and he read it and he really liked it. And we just kept in communication via phone or, uh, if he was in town, we'd get together for lunch. And then our relationship grew and grew, even though the project that I had originally, uh, the project that I originally approached him about, was sort of falling apart. It wasn't going anywhere. And I, I was dealing with people that were a little backstabby. So I folded the project reluctantly. I didn't really want to because I really, really liked the idea. But I wrote something completely different. It was still in the horror genre, sort of more of a psychological thriller. Uh, I wrote a part specifically for him. And I called him up and I told him, look, the movie was called Southern Hospitality. I said, look, Southern hospitality is not going to happen. And I really want to make a movie before I die. I was dramatic back then. And uh, I said, I wrote this script. It's sort of based on Edgar Allan Poe stuff. It's based on a poem, too, called Edgar Allan Poe. But it's got little peppering of Edgar Allan Poe literature references throughout. And, and it's sort of a, the telltale heart a little bit as well and being a writer he's like great i'd love to read that so i sent it to him and he loved it in the movie he plays an abusive stepfather and he loved it he loved the part he loved the fact that it wasn't there were no chainsaw references which he appreciated even though he embraced texas chainsaw massacre he he enjoyed the fact that i wasn't trying to i wasn't trying to um, joke around with that whole thing like others have which is fine, but he just he, he liked the fact that it wasn't Texas Chainsaw Massacre related at all, and uh, and that it was more of a more of a part. There was he had dialogue, and there was acting, and he was sensitive at times, and he was mean at times, and uh, and and originally he had written me a letter of intent for the first project, and I, I think I, Bruce lent me like five hundred bucks to pay him. I didn't have any money to have him write me another letter of intent. And I kind of lamented that over the phone one day. And he said, I really like the script. Um, watch your mail in the next few days and let me know if you get something. So I hung up and I got a letter like three or four days later. And it was the exact same letter of intent from Gunner, basically to use his name to raise money. But he had changed the title from Southern Hospitality to Hatred of a Minute. So he basically gave me a free letter of intent for this new project. And we ended up raising the money and making the movie. Thanks to him and Bruce. They were my two champions 
aside from my mother and my friend Kristen, they were my two big champions in the in the genre world, the entertainment world. What was your relationship with Gunner after that? We stayed in touch. Unfortunately, we didn't stay in touch as much as I'd like to have. Looking back, I wish we could have stayed in touch more. It's probably my fault. Um, but uh, I saw him a few times after that. We talked quite a bit, and uh, we maintained a relationship. Um, I unfortunately didn't get to see him before he passed away, but uh, there were we had some moments where we hung out a while before he passed, but it was always very good. I mean, Gunnar was just a, a great guy. And again, he was, he was a champion. He was always, he had my back, which was great, especially in the beginning. But even after the, like it took a long time to finish the movie because uh, we ran out of money after we shot it. And then we'd raise a little more and then we'd run out and then we'd raise a little more and work on it and run out. So it was a long process. And that was when the, the time when I felt that, uh, there was a distance simply because I really didn't have anything to report. And I felt that he might've gotten frustrated that the movie didn't happen as fast as he would have liked to. I know I was frustrated that the movie didn't happen as fast as I would have liked to. So we didn't talk as much, but, uh, but we remained friends until he passed. Well, tell me about dinner with Leatherface. How did that come about? I believe in serendipity and I believe in little omens and things happen for a reason. Hatred had come out in 2003 through anchor bay and unfortunately didn't make as much noise that I, as i would have liked it to uh, anchor bay was going through some managerial changes management changes and it didn't get the release i thought it was going to especially when they said they were going to hype it up and bruce campbell had his name on it as a producer and gunner hansen was one of the stars and which was a little depressing so it came out it had its release uh, the, the rights reverted back to me 10 years later. I had been, in, in 2015, I had been actively searching to get a re-release of the movie after looking for someone to be, after looking for someone to redistribute it for a year. And my buddy Jeff was going to the American film market and I spent, he needed an ad slick, which is basically, for those of you who don't know, it's an eight by 10 that has like the movie poster art on the front and on the back. It's, it's basically a sales sheet tells you what the movie's about, who's in it, how long it is, and that it's available in these territories or worldwide or whatever. So it's just basically a big card that you can hand the distributors and go, Hey, you want to buy my movie? It's ready to go. So I just put together a new ad slick because he was going to the American film market and he had a couple of distributors that he thought might redistribute the movie since anchor Bay's, distribution rights had run out and the rights reverted back to me. And I spent about six hours one day putting together this new ad slick and I met up with him and I handed over the ad slick. I made copies of the ad slick. I handed a bunch of copies over to him and he left and I looked at my phone and there was an apology from a friend of mine who had found me on Facebook and said, I'm really sorry to hear about Gunner. And I looked up what she was talking about and he had passed. And it was very depressing because uh, I had missed seeing him uh, the, the year prior. He had released a book called Chainsaw Confidential, which was his experience making Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I'd missed the signing. I thought it was going an hour later than it actually did. And we had actual plans to go to dinner. And I called him on the way saying that I was on my way. He had told me he had already left. He sounded a little mad. And uh, I, I felt terrible. I 
So I thought it went from five, from 2 p.m. to 5, and it went from 2 to 4. So I missed him. And uh, that was the first thing that popped in my head was, damn it. Not only did I miss the signing, I missed seeing him one last time. And about a week later, it just popped in my head. I had just spoken to a friend of mine who was in a band called the 3D Invisibles, which is a local Detroit band. And they wrote a song that I introduced Gunner to back in 1994 when I picked him up from the airport. I played the song for him called Dinner with Leatherface that these guys wrote. My friend Rick, who's the lead singer and guitarist of the band, I just talked to him. So Creepy Rick, we had just corresponded about a week after me finding out about Gunner's death. And for some reason, that song, I hung up with him and that song popped in my head. And I went, holy shit, this is a documentary. That, that's why this song exists. Because I thought Gunner needs, he's done so many things. Aside from being an actor in genre films, a lot of A, B, C, D movies, he was a writer. He was a documentarian. He was a scholar. He was one of the first guys to work on computers, apparently. He was a boat captain. Like, he did all of these things. And I thought, you know, he really, people really need to know who he really was. It was one of the first stories Gunner ever told me. The first time he was in Michigan and we hung out, aside from the convention circuit and that, when he called me and said, I'm in town, let's go get dinner tonight. He told me the story of how when he worked on Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers, the driver that picked him up from the airport shook the entire time they drove to set because he was so scared that he was like Leatherface that he couldn't speak to him. He was afraid Gunner was really Leatherface. It was farthest from the truth. Gunner, is, Gunner was the exact opposite of Leatherface, where Leatherface would, you know, cut you up with a chainsaw. Gunner would never do that. He would never harm you. He was always just very sweet. That always made me laugh. So a week after Gunner's passing, all of these ideas and all of these, these memories and thoughts flooded in my head. And Creepy Rick's song popping in my head kind of solidified it. I said, I have a title. I have a title track. So I ended up talking to Creepy Rick again shortly thereafter and said, look, I'm going to make a Gunnar Hansen documentary, sort of a tribute documentary to show people who he was for real. And I would love to use the song you guys wrote uh, for the movie because he loved it. And Creepy Rick didn't skip a beat. He's like, absolutely do it. So I've been working on this documentary for over two years now, slowly but surely, because I started with no money and I'm continuing shooting with no money. But hopefully we have we have some news, hopefully in the next couple of weeks that we might get finishing funds. So but I'm still doing it for Gunner. And right now I'm cutting together a rough cut for these two companies that are interested in potentially giving us finishing funds for the film. Tell me about the current state of Hatred of a Minute. Hatred of a Minute is currently being reassembled for a Blu-ray release. Uh, last summer, I went back to Michigan, thanks to Bruce. I went back to Michigan to pick up all my negatives for the movie and bring it back to Los Angeles to get transferred to high def. So Bruce flew me back out of the kindness of his heart. I rented a van with some kick and AC and uh, loaded all my negative into the van and I drove it back across country with mom in tow. Mom was my co-pilot, sort of 
uh, sort of uh, coming full circle because my mom helped me move out here in 2004. She drove with me when I packed the U-Haul and drove out here permanently. We drove the film back because I was originally I had asked Bruce if I could borrow some money to have it all FedExed, all the negative FedExed. And he said, well, no, I'm not going to do that. And I was like, okay, well, I'm just asking. He goes, no, I'll do you one better. I'll fly you home and then you can drive it out because would you really want some third party handling your precious original camera negative for your first film? Would you just want some FedEx guy throwing boxes around of your first film? And I went, no, (laughs) no, I wouldn't. So I flew home, rented a van, and me and mom took a five-day cross-country trip with my negative in tow. And when I got back, I went to a place that does uh, transfers, 16-millimeter transfers to 2K and had all the film transferred to 2K. And I've reassembled the movie. There's a couple of little tweaks here and there that I have to make, but the movie's reassembled. Now all I have to do is clean it frame by frame, get those dust specks and things off, and color correct it, and uh, then hand it over to my buddy Don, who's going to distribute it through his company, Synapse Films. And did you also say that there's a making of as well? Yeah, and I mentioned Full Circle. So Bruce kind of came up with the whole title of this documentary I'm doing about the making of because there was never a making of on the DVD of Hatred of a Minute. He had said that I should go home, he'll fly me back, and I'd have come full circle because when we shot the movie uh, in 95, right after we were done shooting, I drove out here with all the film elements and I started editing. And then when we ran out of money, uh, we cut together a trailer and I went back to Michigan and raise more money and continued to finish the film slowly back in Michigan. And then I moved out here in 2004. Mom came with. Then again, in 2017, same thing. She came out with me again with all the negative. So he had said that, it, you know, you had come full circle or I'd come full circle. So uh, I named the documentary Full Circle and I started shooting it with my iPhone on the trip back from Detroit with the negative and have been getting uh, interviews, retrospective interviews uh, about the making of Hatred of a Minute from from the actors, from Bruce. I've interviewed myself. Uh, I've documented the, the process of uh, transferring the negative to 2K and the whole process of, I, I'd say, it's not just a making of a movie, it's a remaking of a movie because we're doing basically everything all over again in the post-production world. When I was home, I started shooting some documentary stuff. We, Bruce was actually at the Redford Theater where they premiered Evil Dead 30 years prior. He was there for a book signing because he had just released his uh, third book. And the event included a book signing, Last Fan Standing, his game show, then a midnight screening of Evil Dead. When we made Hatred back in 95, we had offices above the Redford Theater and we shot quite a few scenes around that theater and in the neighborhood. So it was all kind of the serendipitous full circle thing happening with this documentary. So um, I decided to call it full circle and it'll be on the Blu-ray. The making slash remaking of Hatred of a Minute. You have worked on so many things over the years and continue to work on things. What are some of the other stuff that uh, that you're working on these days? I'm doing the same thing with uh, my 50 sci-fi spoof, my second feature, Mutant Swinger from Mars. That's being reassembled as well uh, for a Blu-ray release. 
and I'm doing a little making of with uh, that. I've been I've been interviewing some of the actors and that were involved with that movie, and or they send me self tapes of their interview, and I'm doing little shorts. I I have I had this whole idea of doing a little series of mockumentary shorts that I've been currently working on that I'm trying to get out into the world. And uh, I am working on a pilot, a television pilot right now, that's actually not even on the IMDb page, that's based on Lovecraftian-like mythology, sort of a horror. It's been described as the X-Files meets Behind the Music, the Lovecraft edition. It's about these journalists who are discovering that there's something sinister about the premature deaths of a bunch of musicians especially famous ones. And we're trying to get that made into a series. It's called Here Comes the Night. And I've got a couple of horror projects that I've been trying to get financed. One's an anthology where there's three stories of an Uber-like ride app, like three rides gone horribly wrong. And they sort of subtly connect. We're trying to get that off the ground right now. Well, how has it been for you revisit these movies that you made decade or more, two decades earlier, and now you're re-examining them, fixing them up, removing the dust, the dirt, and then making these documentaries about that. How is it kind of uh, going back, you know, going for full circle, as it were? The full circle aspect of going back and, and basically recreating these, these my first two movies, it's pretty fun. It's fun to reminisce, not dwell on it, but reminisce the good times the the perils the pitfalls it was great to take another road trip with mom and and just hang with her but uh and i'm making little tweaks here and there i'm i'm improving things nothing too drastic i'm not george lucasing the movies and adding jar jar binks and scenes it's been not only fun but a new learning experience seeing where i did maybe not do something perfect or uh, looking at things differently as far as um, I've grown as a filmmaker, I've grown as a writer, I've grown as an editor. I had my hand in editing both movies as well. I learned how to edit digitally because of Hatred of a Minute, which thank God I did because it's kept a roof over my head and food in my belly and cash in my pocket. And it started out as a joke. After I moved back to Detroit uh, in 95, late 95, to lick my wounds and eek along with hatred of a minute some more and raise more money. I made the dumb joke after the holidays and after regrouping, I made the dumb joke to Bruce that he said, so what are we going to do about editor an editor? Cause we didn't have an editor anymore. The editor was here in Los Angeles and I was back in Michigan. And I said, Hey, I know Rodriguez said it's all his own movies. Maybe I should learn how to edit. Ha ha ha. And he said, that's a great idea and hung up on me. And I was like, I, wait, I'm kidding. No, I, and, and he called me back 20 minutes later with this idea. I'm going to fly the editor out with this EMC system, which was this primitive digital editing system way before Final Cut. And I think it was the predecessor of the Avid or, or Lightworks. It was one of the, it was, Avid didn't exist yet, or at least as far as I know, it did. We just couldn't afford it. So this EMC was sort of the low budget Avid. He flew the editor out and the system and the editor was in Michigan for a week and he showed me how to edit the movie, showed me all the tricks of digital editing. And I ended up editing my own movie for 10 weeks. 
And then I thought the movie was done. At least I thought the version that I cut was perfect because I was a young filmmaker and I was, you know, this is my first movie. Everything's great. And Bruce said, no, you, there's issues. And so a second set of eyes came in along with Bruce and this guy, John Walter, John Walter and Bruce sat down and edited the movie away from me and would send me versions. And some of the things at the time I didn't agree with, some of the things that I thought were brilliant, but putting the movie back together now, my eyes are wide open. I went, oh yeah, I can see why they did that. And oh yeah, I can understand why I, w- I got mad because they were messing with my baby. But, but it was all in the grand scheme of things. And you learn as a filmmaker, especially when you're young, that this is a collaborative thing. And you need, sometimes you need that second set of eyes. Otherwise, you get wrapped up and the film could become masturbatory or, or just it doesn't work. It works to you because you're, you're living with the film. But to an audience, things aren't explained right or at all. Like I could write a scene and have four ideas in my head why the character is motivated. But if it's not on the screen or it's not uh, explained, people, audiences aren't going to get that. So it was a lot of that that I learned like, oh, okay. Now I see why they did this. So it's been an interesting full circle to see like who I was then, who I am now as both a person and a filmmaker and an artist. And and then reliving some of these great stories. There's some seriously fun stories on the making of this movie. Perfect things that happened at the right time and uh, a lot of car problems. A lot of car problems on that movie. But it's all it's very cool. It's very cool to to, to look back and realize that, oh wow, okay. Not only am I looking back, I've learned, and I'm still learning. Michael, where's the best place for people to keep up with you and all these projects you're doing? The best place is I have individual pages for Hatred of the Minute, Dinner with Leatherface, Mutant Swinger from Mars on Facebook. I don't really have a website yet. I have a, I have a YouTube page that I sort of tease people with video and, and updates on as well, um, but I don't actually have a website. I probably should have a website. It's the age of the internet. Why don't I have a website? Mike, why don't I have a website? I was supposed to have a website when I first moved here and the guy who was working on the website freaked out and decided to disappear and move off move out of Los Angeles and no one knows where he is. So that happened. But uh, I'm going to I'm going to look into a website. Well, you know what Bruce Campbell would tell you? He'd say learn how to code yourself. He would. And nowadays you can. I probably should put together a website. But for now like my Facebook pages, if you just type in the titles of the films or the IMDb page, if you look on the IMDb page and type in the titles of the films and Google it, you'll find the Facebook pages and that. And then I will, I promise I will have a, uh, a suitable website at some point and maybe even start an own, my own Instagram again. Everyone's telling me to join Instagram again. I don't have an Instagram. I don't, I don't tweet. I don't have an Instagram. I don't Snapchat. I'm sort of technologically blind sometimes. Took a ride in the country to see the old home. Stopped in at a cemetery to check on Granddad's bones. Picked up a hitchhiker with a camera and a knife. You threw him out the door and took up for your life. Appears. You take off through the woods with a faucet in your ears. 
this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.